Good morning. You're probably wondering why I'm standing up here instead of one of our pastors. Um, but Pastor Chuck asked me a couple weeks ago if I'd be willing to share the word with you this morning. And I reluctantly agreed to do so. I'm one of the elders here um, at the church. And uh, when I came in this morning, Chuck said, you're way overdressed. And I said, well, I was going to put on my skinny jeans and plaid shirt and put on a bald cap so you would feel a little more at home, but I decided to go against, against that. So let's um, begin with a word of prayer because we're definitely going to need it this morning. All right, Lord God, we thank you so much that you are the one who is with us. Um, we thank you that when we are in need, you are the one who is on our side. And I do pray that as we look at your word this morning, your Holy Spirit would be the one who guides every word and that you would be the one who is ultimately speaking to us. May we listen to your voice and may we apply what you have to say um, as we look into your word this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so today we are continuing the Psalm of Ascents, um, Psalm 123-124. When I agreed to teach and I told my uh, daughter and my uh, wife that I was going to be speaking this morning, the first thing my daughter said to me is, how are you going to do that without a whiteboard and audience participation? And for those of you who know, who go to room 210 for ABF, you understand that I like to draw on the board, lots of stick figures and things like that. And I also like to have people interact. And um, I asked Pastor Chuck for a flannel graph this morning, but he did not oblige. I think we're saving that for when we study the book of Judges a little later in the, in the year. So. Um, so this morning, one, thing I, one other thing that I always do in our class is I always start with a question. And so usually I'm actually looking for feedback for my question. I'm not going to ask you to actually answer this. But I do want you to think about a time when you have felt completely helpless. Um, for me, there's many of those times in my life. But one in particular that I remember is uh, when basically I lost my son, Josiah. Uh, we were taking our dog for a walk, little puppy, um, first puppy that we had owned as a family. And I took him and our middle uh, child, uh, Jordan, our daughter, and we took him for a walk along the bike trail by the river, okay, over near Harding Hills. And we had kind of veered off the trail and we're in the, we were in the woods and we were throwing sticks into this puddle. It was in the spring, so there was deep puddles. And I was trying to teach the dog to swim. And so we threw a stick into the water and he reluctantly finally jumped in and swam and got the stick and came back. And we were doing this for a long time. And Jordan and I were absolutely loving it until we looked around and we realized, um, where's Josiah, my son? Nowhere to be seen, completely gone. And I'm like, okay, where, where is he? Had no idea if he even knew which direction to go in order to get home. Again, we were on the east side of the river and we lived on the west side of MLK. So even if he did know which direction to go, would he have the wherewithal to be able to cross MLK without getting hit by a car? Something along those lines. So obviously all of our joy has turned to frantic fear at this point. 
and we're crying out, crying out, crying out, never answers us. Um, and we did ultimately find him on the bike trail going towards MLK, and he was maybe about 100 yards away from MLK when we finally caught up to him. And he never did answer us, by the way, which was really annoying. Um, <laughs> but anyways, you know, in that time, that was a time when I felt absolutely helpless, okay? And I'm sure all of you can think of times when you have felt helpless as well. Maybe it was a time when you or somebody you love got an unexpected health diagnosis. Or maybe it was a time when you have watched people that you love make choices that you knew were detrimental to themselves um, and, were, and were maybe going to even ruin their lives. Uh, maybe it was losing something or someone that, you, that was very precious to you. Um, we've all been through those times when we have faced things where we just feel completely helpless and completely uh, defenseless. And so today we're going to be looking at the Psalms of Ascent again in our preparation for celebrating the resurrection of, of Jesus on Easter. And last week we were reminded from Psalm 121 that God is our, is our help and that he's tire, tirelessly watching over us in every, circumstances, every circumstance. And truth be told, that actually is a psalm I would have loved to have preached. <laughs> um, and it, it holds special meaning for me because another time when I was feeling very helpless in my life, it was the psalm that the, the woman who would eventually become my wife, i.e. Annie, um, recited to me during that time, and it really helped get me through, through that time. Um, but that's a story for another time. And, but needless, needless to say, I really treasure that psalm. However, you know, God apparently wanted me to teach these psalms to you this morning. And so we're going to begin just by looking at Psalm 123. And I have not been sanctified enough to switch over to Piper's favorite version of the Bible, which is the ESV. So I am going to be reading out of the NIV. Uh, and it says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. So in these psalms, we're reminded why we need God as our help and why we need him to always be watching over us. And this brings us to the premise for our message today, which is in our absolute helplessness and utter need, we can fully trust in our heavenly master because, number one, we dependently look on him alone, which is what we see in Psalm 123, verses 1 through 2. So as mentioned last week in the introduction to the Psalms of Ascent, these are the Psalms that the pilgrims of Israel were singing as they were going up to the Mount of Jerusalem, okay? And as they were going, and that was especially during Passover, but it was during any of the Psalms where, or any of the feasts in which the um, Jews would come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. 
And as Chuck said last week, it, you know, these were the songs that were sung in, in worship to prepare for worship, um, like tailgating but holy. I'll never forget that phrase. Um, <clears throat> and, it, and so Psalm 123 is the fourth of the psalms of ascent. And while it is a song of worship, it is not a psalm of celebration as you read through it. Um, rather, it's a song about the, about the humiliation and a plea for God's mercy to deliver us from it. So the author of the Psalms, he begins this plea by focusing the singers beyond the quagmire of this world and looking to the one who is enthroned in heaven. And we see that obviously in verse 1 where it says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. And what I find interesting about that phrase is, is, again, in the Jewish context, they were singing this as they were going up to Jerusalem. And what were they going to in Jerusalem? They were going to go to the temple. What did the temple represent for the Jewish people? It represented the presence of God with them on earth. And yet the psalmist, he begins by immediately lifting their eyes even above the temple, realizing that the God that they serve is not just a God that dwells in the temple. Um, as, as Paul said to the Romans when he was giving his discourse in, in Athens, he said, you know, our God does not live in temples made by hands. He, couldn't, he can't be contained by, by um, human temples. Instead, we serve a God who is enthroned in the heavens. He's the one who rules over all of the universe from this heavenly throne. And so when we look to our God, when we lift our eyes, we look to the true God, to the ultimate God, to the God who rules over all things. Then he goes on and, and he basically describes the posture in which we are to look to this God. And so, you know, how do we look upon the one who is so high above the world that he made and so high above us, um, we have to do it with the humble attitude of a slave or a maidservant. And so he goes into these verses where he says, you know, as the slave looks to the, or as slaves look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her maidservant. And, and when we think about those phrases, the idea of a slave or maidservant, what is the picture that you, comes to your mind? Um, a lot of the earlier commentaries related to this passage, they kind of, they kind of um, romanticized, I would say, the care of the masters for the slaves. And they would talk about how, you know, the fact that the, in the East, slaves were often treated with much more care by their masters because their masters, you know, knew, saw the value of these slaves and they, and they, you know, wanted to make sure that all of their needs were met. And a couple of them even would list out all of the things that masters provided for their slaves. You know, they said, and so they would say that these, you know, masters of the East would give them direction. So they would essentially appoint the work that was assigned to their, to the slaves that they would give provision. Um, they would give them the means to accomplish their task. They would provide protection, um, and, and they would right the wrongs of those who had injured their slaves. 
Uh, they would provide correction, giving them guidance when they strayed off course, and they would pr provide rewards. They would mercifully give them even beyond what the slaves needed. And while that's all well and good, and maybe was somewhat true of the, of the, of the masters of the East, we unfortunately look through slavery in a very different lens here in the United States. And certainly we understand that we you know, have the backdrop of basically building the wealth of our nation upon the backs of our African brothers who, who labored merc mercilessly and cruelly under the hand of their masters. Um, those of you who are as old or older than me remember movies like Roots, okay, where we talked, we, we followed the life of Kunta Kinte from his bondage in Africa all the way until the point of being, you know, sold on a slave market and then the horrific treatment that he endured throughout his, throughout his life um, under the hand of his slave owner. And we also think of movies like Amistad, which focused more on just the journey that the slaves took and how they, again, even in the journey, were completely beat down and cruelly oppressed. And that's the picture that we often think of when we think of slaves and of masters. Quite frankly, we don't really know what the posture of the masters were in this psalm, you know, of the, of the masters that they were talking about. But what we do know in terms of the relationship between the slave and the master is that regardless of how the master treated the slaves, there were three things that were true. One is that the masters fully owned the slaves. Two, the slaves were, full, were or, or more appropriately, I should say, that the slaves were fully, fully owned by the master. Um, secondly, that the slaves were fully submitted to the will of their masters. And thirdly, that the slaves were fully dependent on their masters for every, every provision. And so in the same way, that's the attitude we are to come to this holy God, to lift our, lift our eyes to this holy God. We need to remember that we are fully owned by him, that we need to be fully submitted to his will, and that we are fully dependent upon his mercy for every provision that we need. We need to recognize that God opposes the proud, uh, but gives grace to the humble, which we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. And that is only in this state that we can seek the Lord with the expectancy of his mercy. And that, and that brings us then to the second truth of this passage, which is that he alone can provide the nurse, mercy we need, which is seen in verses 3 through 4. So after recognizing the fully dependent state in which we come to our God who is enthroned in heaven, the psalmist continues with this desperate plea, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. We've, you know, we've endured, and what's the impetus for the, for the plea? Because we have endured more than enough of contempt. And so the people of Israel, as we know, had endured scorn um, from those who are at ease and contempt from the proud, and we, we do see many examples of this in Scripture. I can think of, I mean, lots of them as we look through the Old Testament, but a few that came to mind initially were, for me were the Philistines, 
as they were gloating over Samson after they had captured him, put out his eyes. Um, another one was Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who had come to fight against Jerusalem. And his field commander goes and he basically taunts the people who are sitting on the wall of Jerusalem. And he's, he, he questions, you know, who is this God that you're putting your trust in? You know, and, and he, he basically is, is mocking um, the people of Israel for putting, believing that they have any hope against this empire that has basically swallowed up most of the rest of the earth in battle. And then the last one I thought of was um, Sanballat and Tobiah. You know, everyday household names that we, we say every day today. Um, but he, they were the ones that after the exile in Babylon, when Nehemiah came back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, they were the ones who basically opposed them. And they said, ah, even foxes will be able to knock over the walls that you're trying to build here. Uh, so those were examples of external threats, but there are also um, were internal threats. Um, internally, there were people within the nation of Israel that were very proud and, and were contemptuous for those who wanted to truly follow the Lord God. And I think of specifically, again, of um, Jehoiakim, um, which in Jeremiah uh, chapter 36, Jeremiah had written this scroll um, by the hand of a scribe, Baruch, and Baruch had taken the scribe to uh, basically Jehoiakim. And as Jehoiakim read it, rather than repenting under the word of the Lord that was meant to convict, he reads a few lines of the scroll, takes a knife, cuts it off, throws it in the fire. Reads a few more lines, cuts it off, throws it into the fire. Reads a few more lines, cuts it off, throws it into the fire. And so we see that there were many examples, but specifically among the kings, who just refused to listen to what the prophets were saying to the people. And not only refused, but also, again, opposed them in pride and contempt. And so we see many, many examples of that in Scripture. And thankfully, we don't face anything like that today, right? On the contrary, it seems like ridicule of those who faithfully follow God has only seemed to accelerate in the days of social media, where no topic is sacred, and lobbing verbal onslaughts with no thought of decorum or fear of face-to-face -face dialogue is the norm. So a few years ago, we had done a study on this book, um, Evangelism as Exiles, and I think the, that Elliot Clark, the author of this book, summarizes it quite succinctly this way. He says, we all know a seismic cultural shift is taking place in our land. The social pressures crashing against Christians and Christianity are on the rise and aren't likely to recede for some time. The West is fast becoming post-Christian, post-truth, and perhaps even post-tolerant. Our exile and persecution don't seem any longer to be a question of if or even when, but how far. How far will we slide? How much will we lose? How long will it last? And while those are all reasonable questions, the more pressing and biblical question is this, how will the church respond? 
Suffering and social exclusion is actually the most normal thing in all the world, according to 1 Peter chapter 4. It was normal for Jesus. It was normal for the disciples. It's common for our brothers and sisters around the world today. So the fact that we face ridicule and we face contempt should not be a surprise to us. Uh, Jesus made it very clear to his disciples that they would be persecuted for following him. And we'll, we'll um, you know, Jesus in, in the upper room discourse, which was basically the last sermon that he gave the disciples before he went to the cross, he said this, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So that's a message that not only pertained to the apostles, obviously that's a message that Christ meant for all of his followers. And Jude even reiterates that in verse 17 of, of his book, where he says, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. We should not be shocked that we increasingly face proud and arrogant people who will try to shame us for the truth we trust in and proclaim through our Lord Jesus Christ. What I find interesting about this psalm is that it ends with this plea. When you think about it, there's not really any re resolution. It's just this cry for mercy in the face of contempt. And that's how it ends. Um, the, you know, the, the psalmist simply acknowledges who God is, what their state is, and with these truths in mind, he cries out to God for mercy. The question that, I, that we have is, are we able to rest in this tension when we face similar circumstances in our own lives? When we face ridicule for our faith, when the proud and the arrogant seem to be winning, when the culture around us is increasingly hostile towards what we believe, can we rest in knowing that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose? But this good is not for our own comfort or safety. Rather, it is because those he predestined he also called to be conformed to the likeness of his son. We're not promised release from the contempt we will face for following Jesus. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. But we are also promised that God will use th these circumstances to make us more like his son, which when you think about it, is the greatest act of mercy God could grant us as we worship him with our songs of ascents on our pilgrimage to his throne room in heaven. So that brings us to the end of Psalm 123. Uh, again, we're just kind of left with this plea from the Israelites for mercy in the face of those who would taunt them for their faith. And it brings us to Psalm 124, 
which many believe was a liturgical song um, where the leader would sing one phrase and then the others would respond with the, with the stanzas that followed. And I know we already did this this morning, but I wanted to read Psalm 124 in that way again. Um, I have split the word verses up a little bit differently, so um, if you could bring that up and let's read this together. And could I get everybody to stand as we read God's word? All right. If the Lord had not been our, on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You can be seated. <clears throat> As mentioned before, Psalm 123 kind of ends in this state of tension, and what's interesting about Psalm 124 is that it seems to begin with the answer to this tension. <clears throat> Psalm 123 ends with these repeated phrases, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. We've endured much contempt, we've endured much contempt. But Psalm 124 begins with the repeated question, if the Lord had not been on our side, if the Lord had not been on our side. So the Lord alone is obviously the answer that we need when we're facing the strife of this world. He is on our side And that's what brings us to our next point. He is on our side when we are defenseless. And we see that in 124 verses 1 through 5. When the proud and arrogant people um, attack, the people of Israel had confidence the Lord would be their help. It was not Baal or Asherah or Dagon or Moloch or any of the other gods that the nations around them worshipped. It wasn't It was not Egypt or Syria or any of the military allies that they could depend depend on. It was really God alone. He was the one who would be on their side when facing the enemies that threatened them and threatened threatened basically to completely overwhelm them. And I find the language that the the psalmist uses pretty interesting um, to describe the powerlessness that Israel felt amongst those who would oppose them. He starts with this image of being swallowed alive. He says, you know, um, when men attack us, they would swallow us alive. And if you think of something that is about to be swallowed alive, it is something that doesn't even have a chance to fight back before it is consumed. Um, And I, I think of, you know, the cartoons where the cat is holding the mouse, right? Um, especially in The Lion King, where they, you know, Scar is holding this little mouse and he's kind of flicking it around. And I mean, the mouse has no chance, right? I mean, it's completely defenseless before a lion. 
And in the same way, that's how Israel feels before these men who are, going, who are ready to attack them. But then the psalmist goes on from this image of being swallowed alive to these different phrases related to water. And he says, you know, when their anger flared up against us, the you know, flood would have engulfed us, the torrent would have swept, us, swept over us, the um, raging waters would have swept us away. And I really like the way the NIV actually states that um, because it's sort of this escalating seriousness, I guess I would say, or, or um, yeah, that it, it just seems to escalate in terms of the, the devastation that's, that is being represented by these various waters. And so we have examples of that, obviously. If, if you have lived in Des Moines for any period of time, you will certainly hear about the flood of 93, right? Um, we moved here in about 98, and I think you know, that was one of the first things people that I heard about as far as the, the big events that had happened in, in Des Moines. And so during the flood of 93, I mean, it was devastating. It was, a, it was considered a 500-year flood, um, and it affected the whole state, not just Des Moines. About a third of the crops in Iowa were affected by the flood of 93. So major, major losses, heavy damage. Uh, obviously, many people went without water, clean water, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. We're flooded with water, but we have no clean drinking water. And that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, again, many, many homes damaged, many businesses damaged, and about seven people lost their lives as a result of the floods of 93. And to me, that's sort of the picture that we get in, in verse 4. Of the, of the text, where it says, you know, the floods, the floods would have engulfed us, the torrents would have swept over us. As devastating as the flood of 93 was, it was nothing compared to the super typhoon Haiyan that hit the Philippines in, on November 8th of 2013. And this is, if any of you have seen um, Soul Surfer, which is the um, story of the famous surfer that lost her arm in short, yes, thank you. Um, so it is participation. Um, anyways, you know, that she, she went to the Philippines on mission and, that's, and this, is, this is referring to that, dev or that destruction that took place or, or natural disaster that took place. But this category, it was a category five storm, tropical storm, um, typhoon, and it created a storm surge that literally hit the beaches of the Philippines and swept away 6,000 people with another 1,800 that went completely missing, uh, damaged over a million homes, um, displaced over 4 million people, and caused about $5.8 million in damages. And to me, that's where that escalation sort of takes place because when, when I look at verse five and see that it's the waters that sweep us away, the raging waters that sweep us away, that's the type of picture that I see in verse five where again, it's like the mouse who has no chance. Anybody who, hits, who gets hit by that type of raging water has no opportunity to survive. And this is the, sen you know, the sense of helplessness that is being depicted, really, um, by the Israelites in the face of their enemies by the, sol by the psalmist. 
And obviously, without God, the sense of desperation Israel is feeling um, is devastating. And, but, the, but the question we have to ask is, okay, well, who are the enemies? And I think certainly, you know, the psalmist is thinking of the physical enemies, you know, the nations that surrounded Israel and had threatened Israel throughout its history. Um, and these are, you know, these are the enemies that, that could bring physical harm upon the nation of Israel. But I think it goes beyond that. And I think that um, in addition to the physical harm, the psalmist was, may also have been thinking about the proud and the arrogant from Psalm 123. He was, about, he was thinking about those who would bring them spiritual harm by leading them to follow gods other than the one true God enthroned in heaven. Um, he, the, you know, the, those were the threats that could cause the people to take their eyes off the one enthroned in heaven and put their trust in lesser gods. And it was those who would um, lead them into idolatry, as mentioned. Certainly, many who wanted to remain faithful during, to Yahweh during those times felt as if they were going to be swept away by the raging waters of the nation that was turning away from the Lord. Um, I think, again, of you know, examples of, say, uh, the prophet... Goodness, completely lost it. Um, anyways, prophets that felt like they were all alone when they were, you know, when they were facing a nation that had completely walked away from the Lord. And certainly we can feel the same way. It's easy for us to feel engulfed amid a culture that's constantly tempting us to take our eyes off of our Savior. Uh, we can feel like we're being swept over by a church culture that encourage us to chase after our best life yet, rather than denying ourselves, taking up our crosses daily, and following the Lord. Uh, however we feel, whenever we feel like we're being swept away by those who would attack us and let their anger flare up against us, we need to constantly remember that the Lord is on our side. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us, which gives us great encouragement and confidence when we are defenseless before, before those who would seek our harm. And we have this confidence because we serve a mighty God, which brings us to our final point. I should have numbered my pages because I have completely lost track where I am. Okay. Uh, we have a God who is able to deliver. And we see that in the last uh, three verses of Psalm 124. As the Israelites are ascending into Jerusalem, um, they knew they had a God that they could praise because they had seen his deliverance many times throughout their history. Uh, as, as, and when I think about it, you know, as they're going up, to celebrate the feast, one of the feasts that they would celebrate was Passover, which marked one of the greatest deliverances that they had received as a nation. Um, they were set free from slavery and bondage to Israel, and they were allowed you know, to essentially be freed and to go as the Lord led them um, through, 
throughout the wilderness. God had saved them, saved Israel from her adversaries many, many times, and instead of being swallowed alive, the Lord did not even let the Israel, Israelites be torn by the teeth of their enemies, as the psalmist says. Um, and when you think about that, it means that his, his, God's deliverance is one that is complete. Um, it's not partial, it is a full, it is a full deliverance. And again, you know, when you think about it, you know, rather than being, being swallowed alive, the Israel has been allowed to escape many times without even being torn in any way, without being injured in any way. And again, going back to the example of, of uh, Sennacherib and his field commander, and taunting the Israelites on, or the the Israelites that were sitting on the walls of Jerusalem, and if you read further in that account, what happened? An angel of the Lord goes through the Assyrian camp in the middle of the night and slaughter and you know slays hundreds of thousands of them, and Assyria ends up going back to withdrawing, obviously as a result because their army has been completely devastated and Assyria withdraws and Jerusalem is saved. Uh, what did the Israelites do in, to, to help? Absolutely nothing. They were completely dependent on God's deliverance, and God's deliverance was fully complete um, in that instance. But not only is God's deliverance complete, it's also a deliverance that is permanent. And that's what we see really in verse 7. Uh, the psalmist says that the bird not only escapes from the snare, but also that the snare itself is broken, meaning that it can't be used to entrap them again. And, I, and this one kind of made me think back to Pharaoh, who rushed after the Israelites when God had parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites were allowed to cross on dry land, and Pharaoh, in his obstinance, goes after them. And what happens to Pharaoh and his whole army? waters come over, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. We've just been reading about the raging waters that the Israelites were worried would sweep them away, but what did God do? He used the waters to sweep away the enemies and to, again, provide a deliverance that was permanent because as Moses had promised the Israelites, these Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again, and God fulfilled his promise and provided a permanent deliverance. And so, seeing all of these truths about God, the psalmist concludes with this final reminder that Israel's help was in the name of the Lord, that he could provide complete and permanent deliverance because he's not only the one who is enthroned in heaven, but also because he is the one who made the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the sovereign one that we can trust, no matter how many proud and arrogant people may come against us. He is the one who is able to deliver even when our enemies threaten to sweep us away. Praise be to the Lord, our help is in his name, and he is the maker of heaven and earth. 
So we've gone through these psalms, and the question is, how does this apply to us? Yeah, is, you know, God is great. He's, you know, he's, we, we can dependently look on him. He alone provides the mercy we need. He's on our side when we're defenseless. He's able to deliver. And that was great for the Israelites. And obviously that still pertains to us today. But what are some practical ways that we can think and apply this to our own lives? And I thought of a couple of verses out of the New Testament um, that really seem to bring this home to me anyways. And the first comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. So if you want to take your, a minute and flip through the, over there, that would be great. Um, but it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. To me, this is an amazing verse because when we think about Jesus and his life on earth, he was on earth for 33 years, right? How many times has he, had he made the ascent to Jerusalem? And how many times had he sung these psalms of ascent going up to celebrate the Passover or one of the other, or the Feast of Tabernacles or one of the other religious feasts? And when I think about it, I often want, I don't often wonder, but in studying this, I wondered, did he sing these songs as he was ascending to celebrate even the last Passover with his disciples before he went to the cross and gave his life ultimately as a, um, as the, you know, to deliver us. Jesus is the ultimate example of one who trusted in our Father in heaven while enduring much contempt. And now just as the Israelites lifted up their eyes to the Lord whose throne is in heaven, so we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus who now is seated at the right hand of God. He alone is the one who will keep us from growing weary and losing heart when we feel like we are defenseless against a proud and arrogant world that wants to swallow us alive and sweep us away. The second application uh, comes from John 16:33, which again is given in the upper room discourse that, the, that Jesus gave just before his disciples, or you know, just before he was um, arrested. And in this verse, it says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So again, Jesus tells us it should not come as a surprise to us when the world hates us, um, when he hates those who put their trust in him. He told us that it was going to happen. However, no matter how bad the culture around the culture around us seems to be going or how hopeless the future on this earth may feel, we can be confident in our Savior who is on our side and who is able to deliver. We can rejoice that when the world seems to be winning and we feel defenseless in the onslaught of those who oppose the gospel, that we trust in the one who has overcome the world. 
We trust his deliverance over the power of sin and over Satan. And we know the ending as expressed in Revelation chapter 12, where it says that, you know, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. So no matter what troubles we're facing or how helpless and defenselessly feel, we can dependently look on our Savior, who alone can show us the mercy we need, and we can be confident that he is on our side and that he alone is able to deliver. Let's pray. God, thank you for these truths that you've given us out of your word. Um, Thank you that we can depend on you no matter how defenseless we may feel in the and no matter what circumstance we face may we always be looking and fixing our gaze upon you and recognizing that you are the one who overcomes and that we can trust in you for your deliverance i pray this in christ's name amen